This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook. I'm a writer here with the Chronicle Herald in Halifax. And on today's episode of Lens Mirrors, we are looking at Hollywood disasters, movies that got a lot of money and a lot of attention and didn't work out so well in the long run, or maybe they did. We'll, we'll look at a few that might need some reconsideration, and we're going to start with... Well, cats. Meow. Well, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and what better occasion to actually look back at some films that uh, may have almost sunk studios, ruined careers, uh, and uh, generally laid waste to the cinematic landscape. Uh, this is a, an edition of... Uh, of, of Lends Me Your Ears devoted to big box office disasters and flops and, and, uh, or, you know, and maybe some of these films actually did okay in the long run or, or had a renewed, um, bout of interest in them, but uh, were generally perceived to be failures on some gigantic epic scale. Yeah. Usually, uh, in the blo- the box office, uh, critically, they were not well received upon, uh, first arriving in cinemas, but, some of them over time have been reconsidered and or deserving of reconsideration. I would say that uh, that I feel like uh, some of these, I, I well, some of the ones on our list, I wasn't super excited to watch again, and uh, I after finishing with them, I I was still like, well, that deserves to <laughs> stay in the dustbin of history. But it, happens, uh, it, happens. it does happen. But there are others, you know, and some get a cult and then, you know, wind up on midnight screenings and and having a, a certain amount of cultural impact. Uh, certainly with the internet, a lot of people step up with uh, with love for uh, for films that were previously uh, pretty much uh, destroyed. Um, and then there's films like, I mean, if you want to go way back, if you want to talk about It's a Wonderful Life, there's a movie that didn't open well in cinemas but has become as much of a chestnut, as much of a Christmas uh, tradition as any movie I can think of. Well, I mean, making any movie is a gamble. <laughs> Let's face it, and uh, you know, it doesn't uh, doesn't always uh, knock it out of the park. And and uh, the tradition of uh, highly anticipated films that uh, go belly up goes back to the silent days, of course. Uh, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance was his follow up to The Birth of a Nation. Now, The Birth of a Nation is a film that. Uh, nobody wants to talk about because of uh, well, it's a very racist movie. It's it's obviously a building block of cinema as we know it. But um, uh, but but now uh, maybe more attention is being paid on his other works, which aren't necessarily uh, praising the Ku Klux Klan, for example. But Intolerance, uh, but but it was still a hit. And then Intolerance came along, and he had this very grandiose. Uh, story he wanted to tell that wove four different historical timelines. I think one was like the French Revolution, uh, the fall of Babylon, and uh, a modern day story of a of um, a young man going to the gallows, I think. It's been years since I've seen it. Uh, and uh, 
there was a lot of cross-cutting between the four different timelines, and it confused audiences who weren't used to such a progressive style of filmmaking. And uh, I think at one point, they even took one of those storylines out of the movie and just cut it into his one single continuity and released that under a different title, I think called The Mother and the Law. So, um, but but his career ne- never really recovered. He did continue to make films into the early sound era, but uh, and he was sort of considered this grandmaster of film, but... Uh, was certainly not uh, given the reins of a major film like Intolerance or uh, Birth of a Nation. Again, that's for sure. Um, so, uh, and that continues on. The, the, the studio system uh, often uh, falls to the prey of whimsy, of, of, of flavors of, of the moment. And, and uh, by the time the film is done, those flavors are passed or those stars are no longer held in such high regard. And, and, uh, and, and these, these films come out and, and just fail to find their audience. Now, uh, we're talking about a movie that's currently in theaters as we speak, has been getting terrible reviews, has got like, was it on, on the IMDb? I mean, not the IMDb ratings or anything to go by, but I think it's at like 2.8 out of 10, which is fairly unbelievable for, for, a for a movie that new, uh, to, to rank so low on there. Uh, but people are still going to see it because, uh, once the word got out, that this adaptation of the Android Weber musical based on the T.S. Eliot book, uh, Possum's book of uh, Practical Cats, um, uh, is so unbelievable and, and such a mind warp that uh, that it kind of has to be seen in the theater, preferably uh, with a group of friends, uh, possibly under the influence, and, uh, and just to it kind of just to have a good old kind of mystery science theater, Rocky horror picture show kind of good time with it. Um, and, uh, and that seems like an appropriate way to view this film. It is a very, very odd musical. Uh, it and, is, I, and I it think, is, absolutely. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the stage musical is, is a very odd yeah. and strange musical. Did you ever see it? Uh, I never saw a live production of it. It did come to Halifax. It played at the Halifax Metro Center, of all things. One of those touring Broadway productions that uh, there was one recently of Jersey Boys that played at the Metro Center or the Scotiabank Center, as I'm supposed to call it now. But it was Metro Center when Cats played there. And it it was a very grandiose production, you know, suited to the arena environment with the big tire that goes up to uh, the heavy side layer, the, uh, the cat version of heaven where you go and get kind of like Doctor Who, you get rejuvenated into one of your new nine lives if you're a cat. And so on. Is uh, that really what happens? Because I don't think it's very clear. <laughs> it is not very clear. In fact, I don't even. Th- I think you're supposed to just assume. Oh, you know, cats have nine lives, and and so uh, whichever cat gets to go to the heavy side lair under the Jellicle Moon, and all that jazz. You know um, all the lingo, man. It's something. I know. It's it's a little scary. <laughs> I actually, well, I actually read the book. Uh, I actually read the book before the musical came out uh, many many years ago. So, uh, well, it's it's not. I saw the musical when I was a teenager. My dad and I went, neither of us being particularly into musical theater. I think we wound up getting like uh, uh, free tickets or something. We're like, all right, let's go and see what this thing is all about. I remember being wowed by the stage setup and how immersive it is. It, it was in the round. So so there's this pile of sort of old cars and tires and things in the middle of the room that rotates. And then the cats, or the cat people, the performers – come out into the audience and sit in people's lap and purr and stretch and jump and leap. And it's all pretty cool. Like I was impressed by the, that aspect of it. But I remember about halfway through going, is there ever, is there even a story here or is it just a collection of songs 
you know, and characters. And I, I, I was left with that feeling. Like, there isn't really a story. What you have are a number of songs, most of which are not terribly memorable. And then uh, these kind of odd particular cats, all of whom want the same thing, which is a little unclear. And and as the film is a, maybe a little better in explaining that they all want to go to this, they have this big ball where they, where one cat is chosen by old Deuteronomy to become, to be elevated to, to the great, uh, the, the far side, whatever you explained it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the heavy side the layer. Heavy side layer. And, and, you know, which reminds me a little bit of Logan's run, weirdly. Uh, oh, Carousel? Carousel. Yes. I mean, that's what it reminded I me like of. like a good Carousel reference. Um, so, but the, the film is very faithful to that kind of story. Story again. I put story in air quotes. Uh, there isn't really. It's just a bunch of characters running around and slathered in CGI. Uh, the and, and some of that is kind of. I mean, the the dancers are all very sort of sexy and feline, divine felinity, you might say. Um, but and some of that is is eye catching for sure. But. It's all really bizarre and slightly psychedelic. So, so like there was an article in the, in the Washington Post recently. <laughs> it's a great where, story. Yes. A great story about people uh, taking mind-altering substances to go see this this film and having alternately amazing and terrifying experiences <laughs> in the cinema. And I, but I can understand why the appeal because it does. It is visually something very different. And I have to credit the filmmakers. They commit to this world. They are going all out. They have they have clearly spent a lot of money and a lot of effort to create this world, even if it doesn't really work. Yeah, I haven't smoked weed since I was 14, and I was sorely tempted to get back on that bus for this film. <laughs> I did not, in the end. I, I ended up going by myself at like a 10 a.m. screening. I just thought, you know what? I'll just go early. I'll have the theater to myself, and I can groan and make comments as I wish. And But of course, there were other people there, There's and there were some people there with kids who loved it. Uh, and I think if you love this, because there was kind of a cult Around this, uh, well, around all, this musical, all I mean, of Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, musicals have some fans, certainly. And I mean, this ran for maybe ages. not Starlight Express, maybe but. not, <laughs> but but I mean, all the other ones. You know, people went to see it for years in 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 theaters. So so there there are those who who loved it for sure. Well, yeah. How many people wanted to go to drama school because they saw Cats as a kid and they're just like, I want to be part of this. And then you know that that whole feeling of theater as a happening, um, I feel, reaches its peak with Cats in a way, and it's. It's, it's, it's kind of a, it gives you kind of a weird icky feeling, I think, in a certain degree, all these writhing and, you know, not too subtly sexual cat people. And, and cockroaches uh, with human faces. Yeah, well, that's that's pretty exclusive <laughs> to the film, I think. I don't know yeah. that that shows up in the stage version. But, right, uh, right. No, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, I... I, uh, I I kind of lost my train of thought there with the, the dancing cockroaches. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. But uh, you know, I, uh-huh. I I like some Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, not necessarily this one. Uh, you know, I like Evita. I like Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, I like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I don't know why that hasn't been turned into a film. I guess there's been video versions of stage uh, productions of it, but um, you know, I, I'm guessing there's probably going to be a Sunset Boulevard movie at some point. Uh, so that, that keeps getting revived and is still incredibly popular. Uh, you know, Glenn Close apparently was amazing as Norma Desmond in one of the productions of it. I'm not sure which one. Um, uh, so, you know, there's, there's this ongoing interest in it. But but 
I don't know, Cats, I don't think the songs are that great. Um, they aren't. They aren't. They, I, that's, I'm afraid that's, that's my takeaway, too. You know, I, somebody pointed out which classical music composer uh, he ripped off from memory. I can't remember if it was Mendelssohn or, or who it was exactly. But, uh, you know, once uh, at, that, at that point, once I heard that, I couldn't unhear it. Um, but uh, I actually did like the Taylor Swift song from this film. Yeah, it's probably it was the, okay. It's probably the best number in the film, which doesn't say much for the rest of the original score. And, and, uh, it's so heavy on those dated sounding synths. And yet I think, uh, I I've, I've read people say that, well, yeah, but it's got to sound like that. Cause that's the sound of cats is that early eighties kind of tinny synth synth sound. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, when that just kind of comes up early in the film and I'm just kind of going, okay, <laughs> they're going to be kind of faithful to it. So I, I guess what I was thinking earlier was that if, if you really have a love affair with this musical, um, a, you're going to want to see it anyway, you know, and, um, you know, no one's going to tell you any different, but, uh, you're probably going to get the most enjoyment if you have some prior predilection for uh, this particular piece. Um, but at some, at, at the same time, I feel it's, Maybe it's worth seeing if you just miss a certain old-fashioned kind of filmmaking, because although it is very CGI and very high-tech, um, like you say, the set construction, the costume design, what we can determine is actually real, <laughs> is 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 pretty amazing. Um, you know, and the film definitely does have a certain look and a style to it, uh, and uh, and there are some some great moments. Uh, the, the the I just uh, it, it is kind of directed into that modern kind of blender style of editing that kind of reduces the the dancing to a kind of a blink and you'll miss it uh kind of sensation you know when 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 Shimbleshanks uh the railway cat shows up and they actually just film him dancing and the other cats sort of dancing with him on the railway tracks and they don't cut away it's like a, this incredible relief <laughs> like finally I can actually watch cuz I'm you know I'm guessing these people that aren't the big stars who have the cameos um, are, are pretty talented dancers and performers. And yet, you know, the, their, their performances get so sliced and diced in the editing room that you have, you know, you don't have a chance to focus on it. Well, this is part of my problem with it. And it's not even the slicing and dicing. It's the fact that with all the CGI, I'm not sure if I'm actually watching someone dance or whether I'm watching a CGI recreation of it. I, and there are times when it seems like the feet, the performer's feet aren't even touching the ground. Yes, that's and, true. And it just feels like it's that oversaturated, over green screen unreality that takes me out of the production all the time. And, and you know, it's and, – and then there's the issue – Hooper, the director, Tom Hooper, has shown how he knows how to tell a story in, in song with Les Miserables. And he did also The Danish Girl and The King's Speech. He knows how to, how to tell a decent story in film. But um, – there's a tonal there issue There isn't a here. story to this. There film. isn't a story, A, but there's also a tonal issue. Like you've got this sort of crazy, fun fantasy world that I think would appeal to kids. And then you've got uh, Jennifer Hudson playing the cat that sings, uh, I was about to say misery, uh, memory. <laughs> <laughs> memory. And she is clearly in pain and she is going for it. She's going for it like Anne Hathaway did in Les Mis. Like she is just singing and crying and the snot is running, running down her face. That is a choice that I don't and it's, it's like she's walked in from another tonally, another film altogether. Like she's just, she's really bringing it and her voice is glorious and she really can sing that song. She sings, I think like three times, but it, it, then you have like, 
you know, magical cats getting transported from a theater to a barge in the middle of the Thames where they have to walk the plank. And it's all like, oh, fun and games and and like, you know, chitty, chitty, bang, bang or something like there's there's there is a, a very, a very light sort of frothy kids movie in this. And then there is. I want to say misery again, <laughs> memory. And, and it just feels like what is like tonally it's all over the place. And uh, it just, you just kind of at in awe, at awe that, that you're, you're seeing this, that the, this take place. There is kind of a jaw dropping aspect to it, like a, a car crash. And that is, I think in indicative of some of the movies we're going to talk about today is that, that the disastrous nature of them comes from like, just you cannot quite believe that you're you're seeing what you're seeing that 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 a lot of people believed in this you know for a film like this to get made hundreds of people had to work very hard and spend a lot of money to make it work and and they all thought that this was going to this is the way it should go i mean really yeah i i feel like maybe the idea from years and years and years ago because i mean as soon as cats became a hit there was talk of a movie uh so basically this is like a film that Maybe we haven't been waiting to see for for you know what forty years now, but 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 you know we've been expecting to see like 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 the movie version of Cats seemed like an inevitability, even though it 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 is like something like close to forty years since the musical debuted on Broadway, and uh, you know at one point they were talking about doing it animated and and maybe computer animated is that format, and I'm. Part of me is thinking that might have been the way to go. To, yeah, to that do, might have been. To, because, I mean, they're obviously songs are a big part of animated films, you know, even in, in the in the Pixar movies, Toy Story and so on. But, you know, I don't know if there's been a fully CGI musical film. Well, um, Lion King, I guess, recently. But but that's I, I, also based I, on. I guess it's, yeah, it's CGI, on, but meant to look incredibly yeah, realistic. That's right. Yeah, photorealistic. Uh, I mean, that's another way you can go now because ugh. of technology. It, it, it's there. Well, this is, I mean, this is practically that, um, you know, obviously some of the sets are real and some of them are not. And, uh, you know, and I keep reading about, okay, which parts of these cats are, are digital and which like, were they all just wearing sort of green screen ping pong ball outfits? And then, cause I hear the fur was, is sort of CGI applied. And in a lot of cases, you can tell that the face is not actually, doesn't actually belong to the person that's wearing it. Like, uh-huh. uh, there's so many, moments in this film where I'm looking at, uh, especially I think Victoria, the, the, the main kind of cat who's our eyes, ears, and paws into this world. She's like the cat that's observing everything and this constant state of wide eyed wonder. Um, and, uh, but, but a lot of the time her face is doing that floaty thing where it's not perfectly affixed yeah. to that head. Yeah. And it's, uh, I've already used the phrase uncatty Valley, um, online. So I'm already guilty of using that terrible pun, but I, <laughs> it, I think it certainly applies to a lot of what we see here where, um, you know, it's not just a person in a cat costume dancing around. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of jiggery pokery going on that doesn't necessarily pay off because sometimes you can, even though it's, and, and I don't even know what the differences are, but, but aside from, uh, Judy Dench's wedding ring. I don't know exactly what the differences are between the CGI, the, the the first version that was released to theaters and the version that was supposedly fixed up, and and not it every, still didn't look that good because I saw the second. Oh, you did version. see the cleanup version, yeah, okay. and I still thought it had problems. So, so yeah, um, so uh, yeah, there there is that kind of like constant what am I looking at kind of thing that kept coming over me because I did actually want to enjoy the film. I I, I want to see more big screen musicals. I know it's kind of a, a, a dead genre 
for the most part, uh, I guess until well, we've got In the Heights coming. Yeah, along. I saw the trailer for that. That looks uh, looks like it. Might yeah, be fun. and in fact, the in the In the Heights trailer, you know, just sort of highlighted what Cats was missing <laughs> in a lot yeah. of ways, and you know, eventually we're going to get a Hamilton film, and that'll be hopefully enjoyable. Um, you know, I, you know whether depending on how they decide to stage it, whether to go hyper realistic historical or do some kind of stylized thing, which could also work. But in the case of Cats, they just I guess kept throwing money at it to get something that looked big and splashy and expensive. And that maybe necessarily wasn't the way to go. Um, and, you know, I don't know that having all these star cameos from, uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, Taylor Swift's scene does enliven the film. I mean, I think that was probably money well spent, but uh, you know, rebel Wilson and James Corden, maybe not so much. So speaking of musicals, Stephen, on this uh, Hollywood disaster yeah. episode of Lens Me Your Ears, uh, it, the, watching Cats made me want to go back and watch Xanadu uh, from 1980. You uh, poor deluded fool. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw it back in the day. I remember the soundtrack. I remember the songs from the soundtrack. Magic by Living Newton-John. There's a great song. Suddenly, these are big hits. And I guess the soundtrack was quite a success, but the film that it uh it's it's you know it, it it paired up with is just was just not that well received though i think it has achieved some kind of a um a cult in the year since uh basically <clears throat> it starts with uh, michael beck who is an actor who i remember from the warriors mostly otherwise i don't really know his stuff but uh he starts he's, he's kind of a painter yeah he didn't have much of a career after no, xanadu i don't think so um uh, he says, and his first line is, what the hell? Guys like me shouldn't dream anyway. So you know where you're at. This guy is 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 feeling uh, stymied. He's an artist. He's a painter. He's been off trying to make a, a work, work and life for himself as a painter. But he's had to come back to his sort of paint-by-numbers job with a bunch of other people who are, you know, just hanging out in this big sort of bullpen. And uh, But at the same time, one of his murals comes to life. Uh, and Olivia Newton-John is suddenly born out of a neon-lit mural and with a lot of chintzy spe early 80s special effects scored to an ELO song. Uh, you know, she's alive, and it turns out she's a muse. And uh, that's basically the story, is she, is she kind of inspires, um, you know, our, our our young hero to try to take more chances with it in his life. And meanwhile, it turns out that she's also the spitting image of someone who... Uh, used to be uh, involved with um, uh, who else is in this? Uh, just blanking now. Oh, Gene <laughs> Kelly, of course, it's Gene <laughs> Kelly who's in this. Um, and and she, she she has a number with him. This is a kind of musical I really where I really love the music and the dance numbers. Um, but uh, I didn't really otherwise. As soon as the music or the dance stopped, it just became really kind of. Hokey. Oh yeah, the story and 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 there's no chemistry at all between Olivia Newton John and Michael Beck uh, in this film. Uh, you know, Gene Kelly's fun to watch. It's nice to see him. He's obviously, you know, not in tip top shape, but um, you know, he can still shake a leg, and he's he's fun to watch throughout this film. Uh, the roller skate scene is is fun, and when they're sort of dressed up in their wartime garb, you know, doing kind of like an Andrews sisters kind of thing. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Um, yeah, again, you know. Like cats, there there are certainly moments that uh, stand out as being entertaining in a, in a in this storyline. Michael Beck's character is fairly unappealing. I don't think I don't think you have much sympathy or 
love for that, for that guy over the course of the film. And you don't really, you just want to see more of Olivia Newton-John singing. You want to see more of the dancing. You have that wacko animated sequence that Don Bluth right, uh, right. did. And it feels like a sort of a Disney Yeah, sort of well, I mean, you know, Bluth had a Disney background before going on his own to do Secret of Nim and Land Before Time and all that kind of stuff. Um so it, it is that kind of weird throwback. I mean, the stuff that works is kind of a throwback. It is kind of the film saving grace that they handed the music over to Jeff Lynn and ELO mm-hmm. to do because it, it could have just been all disco, I think. I mean, this, right. is, this came out in 1980, uh, obviously in production during 1979. So disco was still kind of the predominant sound um, for the most part. I mean, obviously New Wave and, and stuff was coming, you know, by 79 Blondie and Gary Newman and the cars and stuff like that is coming along. But, um, and ELO had been around since the early seventies, but obviously become much more popular by the end of the decade. Uh, and, and so the music doesn't feel as dated because that sound that Jeff Lynn created is pretty much his signature sound. And those ELO records from that time are still appealing. They're very melodic. Um, they have elements of the Beatles, but also the symphonic thing that he was so fond of. And uh, and I think those the songs still sound pretty good. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. And, uh, and so like I was, said, you know, one of the, the <laughs> saved it from being a complete like financial loss, I think. Totally. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and going back to watch it, it's the music and the dance that works. And I like how they try to connect you know, the disco scene, what was happening in, in the current day with the sort of big band jazz stuff. Like all of that is is pretty fun, even when the effects are kind of chintzy. But but you know what struck me as well, watching it again with all the scenes in Venice Beach and um, and shot in and around Los Angeles is how much La La Land is indebted to us. <laughs> yes, I'd say that that it is a secret influence yeah. on La La Land for yeah. sure. Yeah, so fans of La La Land might want to go and check it out. Uh, yeah, this... this uh I mean, not too many people associated with this film had a lot of luck at their career. Like the director, uh, Robert Greenwald, I think his name is, uh, you know, wound up doing a lot of documentaries, I think. Yeah, he does a lot of like left-leaning sort of political docs now, like including Walmart, The High Cost of Low Price, which That's is, right. I, I remember that coming out. Um, you know, Making a Killing, Guns Greed in the NRA, The Koch Brothers Exposed. He does a lot of these kinds of like activist docs now, which is interesting given <laughs> yeah, the, the, the his, his financial excess that went into making Xanadu. Yeah, that's right. I, I did get to see this. Uh, I mean, I own the Blu-ray, uh, which should come as no surprise to anybody, but I did get to see it. Uh, they had an outdoor screening of it uh, on the waterfront when it was the, uh, the Atlantic Film Festival's uh, Film Festo Al Fresco, their outdoor I film remember, screening. I remember, sure. Lots and of I, interesting films Yeah, there. and there was one summer where I think it was all musicals, um, and, uh, and they were still showing some stuff in 16 millimeter film too. Uh, it wasn't just all video projection. And I think Xanadu was definitely one of the ones I saw because it was really fun to watch it with a crowd and sort of, you know, enjoy the, the, the fun bits and, you know, people could applaud after musical numbers and stuff, but also laugh at the corny bits and the stuff that has not aged well. Uh-huh. Cause there's some, you know, it's right on that perfect cusp between the seventies and the eighties. And, and it sort of has bits of both decades, I think encapsulated in it. So it was fun to watch it with the crowd and that made it a lot more enjoyable. I remember, uh, I think rock and roll high school with the Ramones was one of the other ones. I, I saw, got to see I that saw cabaret at that. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sadly, I missed great. that one. That would be yeah. a fun one to watch. These with the are crowd. the kinds of things that they used to program a little more interesting, a little more challenging stuff. Other Now it tends to be family-friendly stuff that we've all seen, unfortunately, in there. Not to take a shot at Finn, you know, they do a lot of great work, but I, I personally would love to see them program a summer of films that are a little less well-known. 
Yeah, instead of Bill Murray, why not Summer of Ingrid Ingmar Bergman? <laughs> I don't know if that's going to go over as well, Stephen, but, you know, put it out there in the world. You never know. Bring your own strychnine. No, um, um, anyway, and I should, uh, full apologies for Gene Kelly fans out there that for a moment there earlier, I totally blanked on his name. <laughs> um, but yeah, he is really good in this. So um, some there was another film that you had recommended we watch because it was also genuinely a bomb, and that was 1941. From I thought you were going to say Can't Stop the Music with the Village People, the other great musical of, of, that, of that period, yeah, which was also not that well received. New Blu-ray from Shout Factory, I think. Is that right? <laughs> can't Stop the Music. It, I mean, uh, it is a train wreck. <laughs> yeah. I, I just mentioned it because I was thinking Xanadu and musicals. Um, you know, it is, it is, it it has to be seen. It's one of those has to be seen to be believed right. kind of things with, you know, Bruce Jenner and, 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 um, Valerie Perrine doing musical numbers with the village people and, uh, and just these over the top. I mean, that was a complete failure that, you know, that, that I didn't sunk so many careers, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'll think of all those great Bruce Jenner movies that came out as a result. <laughs> um, and none, uh, but, uh, it's it's definitely a product of its time where you just think, wow, you didn't think there was that much cocaine in the world to produce this film, but yeah. apparently, apparently there was. What and about the Beatles musical um, that uh, that came out in the late seventies? What the hell was the name oh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts yeah, Club Band? Yeah, yeah. I saw that in the theater when it came out because <laughs> I was a I discovered the Beatles when I was about ten or eleven or so. And uh, so a few years later, and Sgt. Pepper was the first record I ever bought. So all of a sudden, there's a movie coming out based on my favorite album. And oh my God, worst birthday ever. <laughs> and it's amazing because they <laughs> saw that you at know, the Oxford. Yes. Uh, you know, Saturday Night Fever and Greece had been such huge hits. And I can understand why producers in Hollywood is like, we, there's well, a yeah, thing. We've this is definitely the fallout from yeah, that. Yeah, we're, we're going to try and recapture that kind of magic, and they just can't seem to do it. Now, uh, another big star, uh, Steven Spielberg, who made 1941, he had had huge. Huge hits with Jaws and, uh, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This, to date, I still think is probably his only really, his real bomb where audiences just were like, I am absolutely not interested in going to this. Um, and watching it again, you know, comedies don't tend to age as well as some other films. Speaking um, of cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I watched the uh, Blu-ray. Thank you, Stephen, for the Blu-ray for 1941 because it has a bunch of interesting extra features in the film, including Spielberg saying the kind of thing. And I think it was recorded. He mentions it, uh, laser disc. So this was recorded sometime. Oh yeah. I actually had the deluxe laser disc set for this film. And, uh, thankfully was able to ditch that for this much more compact, uh, non flippy (laughs) Blu-ray that I don't have to flip every 50 minutes. Yeah. Um, But he says in it, like he says the thing that I I think is such a sort of no offense again to Spielberg lovers out there. I'm really, uh, you know, lining up with the, the, there's, we're going to hear about this, but um, (laughs) I hope so uh, that, that he says the most cliched thing, which is, you know, I made this film. I still love it. And, you know, it never got really an audience in the United States, but Europeans, they think it's great. Every time I go over there, I hear all the time how much people love 1941. And I'm like, really, Stephen, do they really, Really? Do they? Do they really love it? Um, it's it's a really broad slapstick heavy comedy um, set in California post the, in the week after Pearl Harbor, where everyone is is on high alert because they're just afraid that the Japanese are going to invade. It was written by John Milius, Robert Zemeckis, and Bob Gale, so t- two Bobs and John, uh, and uh, you know all of whom had great careers around this time. And there are things about 1941 to enjoy that have 
that have actually aged well, and largely due to the cast. Like you have, you, oh, fill, yeah. you put this amount of talent in a movie together, there's going to be stuff to enjoy. But it otherwise is pretty awful. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. <laughs> yeah, I can't argue in favor of this being a good movie, uh-huh. but I do enjoy it. Uh, yeah. for the stuff that it, that's in it that's good. And obviously the, the, the Blu-ray, if you get it, it's got the original theatrical cut, but also an extended version, which has, you know, length and some of the comedy bits. And I think maybe some of the dance routines are longer. Um, oh yeah, there's dancing. It's kind of a musical in parts. Yeah, um, there are moments just to connect it to those other films that we just talked about. Um, there's more stuff with Christopher Lee and Toshiro Mifune. Which, who only which, speak, Lee speaks in German, <laughs> German. throughout. I know. And Mifune speaks in Japanese, and yet they somehow refuse, understand each they, other. They, they understand each other, there's no, but there's no sense of, uh, <laughs> of there being a translator present in the submarine. <laughs> no, that's, well, and I'm, that's, I think that's kind of on purpose. It's yeah. meant to be a joke on, on older war films, I guess. So there's more stuff with them and Slim Pickens, some of which is, is could have probably... Left, been left on the cutting room floor, but it is, you know, nice to see more of the Christopher Lee footage. It's kind of like the Return of the King, where we actually get to see what happened to Saruman and the uh, extended cut that didn't happen in the theatrical cut. Um, and there's even more Christopher Lee in the deleted scenes too. There's there's a gag involving um, he pulls out this device that looks like it's going to be some sort of torture device, and it turns out to be just a foldable coat hanger, which he recycled in one in, of the in Raider, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, he yeah, recycled yeah. it in the in the. <laughs> So that's why it's not in the extended version because it's, it's, he obviously ripped himself off for later. Sure, but, it's a good uh, gag. Um, you know, I, I, I knowing what's coming, I think maybe helps me enjoy it a bit more because I know it's going to be bombastic. I know some of it is going to be screamingly unfunny when it's trying its hardest. Um, but everything is pitched at at, at eleven pretty mm-hmm. much throughout the whole film. Uh, and so I've got to enjoy things like, you know, I think Robert Stack is great as yeah. the general who just doesn't give a crap. Yeah. And, and he was apparently supposed to be eyes. John Wayne. And they also went to Charlton Heston. Neither of them were interested because they felt like it was un-American, this movie. So, you know, maybe maybe watch it for that reason. <laughs> well, Stack's a good choice, you know, bringing some of that airplane energy to, to this. And um, although I think airplane probably came out a year or two later than this. Um uh, you know, th- I mean, there's only, there's a finite number of Jim Belushi or J- Jim Belushi. Uh, I wish there was a finite number of Jim Belushi films. No, there's a finite number of John Belushi films in the world. And, uh, you know, his, his Kelso, uh, is kind of a, you know, it's, I mean, it's not his best work obviously, but he's just, he's just more, he's riffing on the same kind of character. It all feels completely yeah. animal house, yeah. which is interesting because or, Tim, Tim Matheson is in it as well. And he's basically playing the same guy he played in animal house. So it's this weird, just a complete horn dog. Yeah. yeah. This weird extension of, of the characters that I'm familiar with from having seen animal house for years. I mean, I've, I know that comedy pretty well. Um, but yeah, I mean, Belushi just kind of riffing and having a good, a good time playing this, ridiculous fighter ace who's like completely incompetent is um you know like falling off the wings of his plane which apparently was not planned but right they they worked with it um you know the, the i mean that aspect of it brings some physical joy to this film i guess uh that there's some racial humor which is probably the stuff in this that is not aged well at all not at um, all no you know 
and using using some of the pejorative terms for the Japanese that, of course, would have been used fairly readily in the 40s uh, to the degree that they are here maybe wasn't necessary. Uh, uh, so those those are a bit cringeworthy, those yeah. moments. But, but on the plus side, you've got most of SCTV, Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, I keep uh, forgetting John Joe Candy. Flaherty. Joe is Flaherty this. is in it. Guy you, Caballero himself. You've got Nancy Allen, who's pretty great. Uh, and, and and fans of Laverne and Shirley might want to check it out for David Lander and Michael McKean and Penny Marshall, all of whom show up very briefly. Yeah, the, well, and, and Lenny and Squiggy, uh, you know, McKean and uh, and uh, Lander, they they get a special credit at the end, which I thought was pretty funny because they were, you know, they were pretty big TV stars at the time. Uh, and of course, Michael McKean would, you know, certainly go on to have uh, an amazing career in comedy with Spinal Tap and and uh, and then eventually Better Call Saul. And so on. He's certainly a gifted comedic actor. And uh, that cameo is worth it. It's a great cameo. Yeah, it is. It reminded me of the Three Stooges, you know, single shot cameo. And it's a mad, 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 mad world, which I think was kind of the template for what Spielberg was trying to do here. But that's not necessarily the best template because that's another comedy where everything is cranked up to the max and uh, stretched out over way too long a time. And uh, and eventually just becomes screamingly unfunny as opposed to what they're trying to do. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of, stuff to recommend this film in terms of it's one of the last you know apart from maybe the star wars films that followed it's one of the great hurrahs for um miniature work and model work and and that kind of physical special effects um which we don't get anymore because of course everything can be done with computers but the craftsmanship that goes into the the aerial attack or chase over los angeles and and on santa monica pier and and the stuff involving the planes uh is is incredibly well done and well filmed and um and you know it makes me nostalgic for for that kind of craftsmanship which we don't get to see in films anymore yeah. and i yeah i can agree with that and i can also say that you know just as we compared Xanadu to La La Land it would be i think a fair comparison to connect 1941 with Hail Caesar, the the Coen Brothers film. There is some real interesting parallels there in terms of the depiction of Hollywood and uh, and L.A. and then a submarine off the coast. Yes, <laughs> like there's some pretty weird weird things going on. I I think maybe the Coens are secretly fans. It would be like a perverse Coen Brothers thing to have <laughs> tributes to 1941. It's you know a film that is generally not well regarded by by anyone, but. Um, you know, it was certainly a big stepping stone for Zemeckis and Gale, who, of course, uh, you know, Spielberg would produce Back to the Future uh, and, uh, and you know, send them on their way. Prior to this, I think they made uh, um, Used Cars, was, which is a comedy that I love. It's, I mean, it's also bombastic and loud and crude, but in a more contained way than 1941 is. Um, and then they, they'd make a film called I Want to Hold Your Hand which uh, Criterion has put out recently, which is a really fun, if you haven't seen it, it's a really fun uh, portrayal of the day the Beatles arrived in New York City and, and the fans that are going crazy trying to trying to get close to the Beatles, trying to get into the Ed Sullivan Theater to see, or, well, CBS uh, Theater. It wasn't the Ed Sullivan Theater at the time, um, even though Ed was there. And, uh, you know, and try and get close to a Beatle and 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 even just to see them and all that kind of stuff. And it's 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 a really wonderful portrait of that time. Uh, you know, when I see Zemeckis' work now, I kind of wish, he would try and maybe do something simpler and and maybe more funny. He's only but, interested in technology, I think, and so it in, seems, a, in a way, yeah, that is is a is is it's a shame because he's clearly a talented filmmaker. I like the, the walk, but uh, he he does he, he's really hit and miss these days. Yeah, well, I th- I feel like once Gale sort of realized he didn't have to work for a living anymore, I, I'm guessing that's what's happened because he's aside from 
some Back to the Future video game work. I don't think he's done anything in movies since, because why would he? Why does he have to? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, you know, Zemeckis obviously is more driven. Uh, and, you know, but could surprise us at some point. I don't, I, I'm, you know, knocking on wood yeah. anyway. Um, now, before we we switch gears, I wanted to give a shout out to a film we talked briefly about uh, in our 1987 roundup, and that's Ishtar, which is notably one of the biggest bombs in Hollywood history because it was it was one of those movies that no one could understand why it was so expensive. You don't see any of the money really up on screen. Not really, no. But uh, apparently, you know, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are, you know, charge a lot to work in movies. And sadly... Uh, the, the the filmmaker, uh, Elaine May, her career as a director never recovered. I mean, that's the story of these bombs is the director takes it fully in their career. But watching Ishtar again is such a joy. Of all the movies we're, we're mentioning, I think it's the one that that I have revisited the most and, and I'm certainly a part of the cult of Ishtar. Um, and it's really a strange, goofy story about two guys, middle-aged guys, wannabe uh, songwriters. They're in love with Simon and Garfunkel um, in New York, and uh, they are really, they're not doing well, and they all they got basically is e- each other. And they find somehow find themselves an agent who books them in Morocco. Uh, <laughs> and so half of the film takes place, well, maybe two-thirds of the film takes place in North Africa, and they get involved in the political situation there, and, uh, and partner up with the CIA, uh, which is uh, Charles Grodin, is so it's funny so good in this, as a yes. CIA guy. The songs are all written by Paul Williams, uh, including the big hit number, Telling the Truth Can Be Dangerous Business. <laughs> you take it, Stephen. You know the lines. Honest and popular, don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you play the accordion, you won't get hired in a rock, rock and, and roll, roll band. band. Yeah, that's how it goes. And it is really an amazingly awkward and funny movie in so many ways. I would love to get the soundtrack to this movie, but I don't think it's available. Uh, it's no, just, I feel like I should just make my own off of the Blu-ray. <laughs> There's a nice yeah. cheap Blu-ray of this. It doesn't cost very much. If, and it, it is a film that does bear up to repeated viewings. It, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, in a way it's an homage to Bob Hope Bing Crosby road pictures. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's probably what they said at the time it came out and in hopes of garnering more, uh, more people showing up to see it, but it is true. It's, it's, you know, they, they wind up in, I mean, they made a movie called road to Morocco and this is kind of like uh, a postmodern mode road to Morocco only with two of the biggest stars at the time. Um, but yeah, the star salaries were the biggest part of the budget, I think, but yeah. um, you know, as, Occasionally during this film, I feel like you do get a feeling that they're flailing about a little bit. A little bit. And, I, um, you know, and I feel like. Maybe if, more than a little bit, but. If it had been Tom Hanks and Michael Keaton or something at the time, it might have been like a charming, goofy uh, buddy comedy from the 80s. But there's something about these older guys, especially with Dustin Hoffman playing the guy who's sort of confident and cocky and Beatty playing the guy who has no, <laughs> he can't, he can't find his way in the dating scene. Like there's, there's a lot of in jokes here that I sort of appreciate in hindsight, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it really, your mileage may vary, but I, I got a lot of time for Ishtar. I, I, I think the stars have enough charisma that they, they put this material over and it's, it's a shame Elaine May got saddled with, uh, with all the grief <laughs> this film caused. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. 
Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the show that looks at current movies in theaters and movies from the past that we can link up and associate with it and hopefully send you scurrying to Netflix or your streaming service or the library or because there's no video stores, but physical media, you know, maybe, maybe (laughs) Amazon or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, in this case, I think everything that we're talking about is readily available. Of course, Cats was our lead in talking about films that uh, on the surface of it appear to be bombs, but at the same time, uh, people are now enjoying it ironically. Usually it takes a few years uh, for a film like that to kind of gain that sort of uh, appreciation, but Cats seemed to do it almost on a dime. Like within a couple of weeks, people were realizing this film is nutso and we should see it in the theater while we still can. Um, so uh, th- these are all films that have been kind of maligned for one reason or another, um, maybe because of the hype or um, didn't the film didn't live up to the hype or the advanced trailer was super weird, which is what I think what happened with Cats. I think once you saw that trailer, um, all bets were off uh, for that film. And uh, we, we talked about Ishtar being kind of one of the uh, the the big signposts for movies that go horribly, horribly wrong at the box office when, you know, from a troubled production to, um, poor critical reception and lousy, uh, lousy ticket sales. But I think the granddaddy of them all in, in that regard has to be, uh, Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, his, uh, historical Western, his grand sprawling epic of the Johnson County war, uh, in Wyoming in the, uh, in the 1800s. Uh, and, uh, it uh, it is kind of becomes the definitive uh, box office bomb. I mean, it actually did sink a studio. Um, United Artists pretty much, although they were kind of saved by they they also had a James Bond film come out not too long after Heaven's Gate that kept them from going completely under. Um, but it did lead to the sale of the studio and its assets to MGM, which became MGM UA. Um, and uh, Heaven's Gate is 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 a film that is getting reappraised. It is available in a much better version than what people saw in theaters back in, uh, was it 1981, I guess, or 1980 thereabouts. Um, you know, Chimino was a hot property coming off of the deer hunter, which won a pile of Oscars and was a very, you know, it's, it's a very good film. Uh, a, a look at the, the Vietnam war, which is not in any way accurate about that war or how it was fought or, um, how people reacted to it, but it was a very powerful story of a, a group of men from sort of industrial uh, Pennsylvania who go off to war together and the changes that it inflicts on them. So he sticks with that theme of war and uh, in this case, kind of a country at war with itself, um, not the civil war, but the Johnson County war. And it's a, it, it starts off um, with uh, two friends, Chris Christopherson and uh, John Hurt at Ox at, Oh, sorry, at Harvard. It was filmed at Oxford, but it's actually set at Harvard. I was thinking, um, you know, I, I haven't been to Oxford, but I, the arch over well, yeah, the it's, street, it's totally, I was like, that looks like Oxford to me. Yeah, I guess, I guess Harvard just there. didn't look like old Harvard yeah, at that point. So enough. they shot it at Oxford. Um, and so it starts at Oxford um, and then cuts to years later where they're on opposite sides of the line in uh, Wyoming where the cattle barons want to get rid of all the immigrants that are pouring into the state and, and getting land for themselves, setting up little homesteads and farms and, uh, and, and the, the, uh, the conglomerate, the, the multiplicity of these uh, cattle barons, they want to literally wipe out the, uh, the immigrants by hiring a bunch of uh, vigilantes, uh, like a, a force of 50 men from Texas to come up on a train uh, to uh, basically wage war on these fairly defenseless immigrants who are, are pouring into the region. Uh, based on uh, true uh, true facts, um, some of the characters uh, have been altered. Uh, Chris Christopherson is 
unfortunately, the film doesn't define his role very well. I guess he's a marshal. Um, he's fighting on the side of the homesteaders against the cattle barons. Um, uh, he's uh, Isabel Hubert is his uh, his lover. She's um, a madam. In, in real life, her character, known as Cattle Katie, was not a madam and possibly not even a prostitute as she was painted. But you know, she was a a woman who fixed men's clothes. So because a lot of men were coming to her house, people thought she was a prostitute. Maybe not the case, um, depending on which historical record you read. But uh, these were these are real people who got caught up in this uh, in this uh, affair. Um, Chris Christopherson's character in real life was lynched for you know being involved in these cattle thefts. Uh, in the movie, he uh, lives to a ripe old age. And uh, we also have uh, in this love triangle, we have Nate Champion played by Christopher Walken, who's kind of terrifying at the start of the film. He's 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 basically. Uh, helping to take out the immigrant uh, settlers. But by the end of the film, he's, he's kind of turned around to the force of good. Um, and, and it's, it's a great performance from him. This, this film was savage when it was released. It also had 70 minutes cut out of it um, between its uh, initial week in New York and it's run in theaters everywhere else. Um, so the original, I mean, the version you can find now, I think on Criterion. Yes. Criterion it? have put out a fully restored full length director's cut of the film. It's, Three hours thirty six minutes, something like that. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 long. It's, um, it's Irishman length. It is. It, it would have had an intermission originally. It, that's been taken out for whatever reason. Um, uh, at about an hour and forty minutes into the film, you would have gotten a little break. And uh, maybe it is best to watch it in two parts. Um, if you can find out where the the break actually occurs, it's not bad to spread it out. I did that, and uh, and maybe appreciate it a little bit more as kind of an epic. But it is kind of on that Lawrence of Arabia kind of scale. It is a big film. They built, they practically built a town, you know, they brought in railroads. They spent a ton of money, although $36 million, I guess in late seventies money. I don't know how much that is now, but it's it was apparently it's in, in the, the, you know, hundreds, hundreds of millions, hundreds I guess. Of millions, probably yeah. like a $200 million movie yeah. in today's so, money. But. And the thing is though, watching it again now, when it was first released, apparently the cut also looked not good. Uh, we were having a gander at what Roger Ebert yes, had to say Yes, read Roger Ebert's it. review. And he, he thought it looked terrible. And and what I've seen of the film in its, uh, you know, cleaned up and directorial approved release, it looks gorgeous. I mean, this is an impressive film in terms of just the huge production, epic production values. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I clearly am seeing one, or we are seeing a version that Ebert didn't see. So all of that, I think, tends to suggest that this is very much, if, if you have the patience and interest in, in epic Westerns, I think it, it's worth going back to have a look at. Yeah, it was, it had a sepia tone. I mean, Vilma Zygmunt was the cinematographer, but they gave it this kind of hazy sepia hue to all the scenes, which, you know, when you were talking about it, even, even cut by 70 minutes, that's a long haul to be looking at these yellowy, indistinguishable images. So the version that's out now, it's, it's very colorful. It's, it's sharper. It's brightened up. They've, they've basically, it's like they've wiped the Vaseline off the lens. I think it was the analogy you used. And, uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful film and some great performances. Isabel Huppert is great. Um, her performance feels more modern maybe than it might have at the time that it came out. Uh, uh, great Christopher Walken and so many amazing, oh, it's that guy kind of <laughs> right. moments because there's some great actors in the tiniest of roles. Uh, Brad Dourif has, has a wonderful role as um, 
a champion of one of the immigrants. Willem Dafoe is in here briefly. Uh, I guess Chimino fired him partway through production for some reason um, for making jokes between takes or something like that. Uh, I think it was his first major film. You can, you know, there's a scene of a cockfight. Uh, and then, by the way, if you're sensitive to animal abuse, do not watch this film because there are some scenes of um, where, you know, it, it's pretty apparent that animals are being hurt. So that's that's one of the big strikes against this film. But, um, but uh, Jeff Bridges has... Predominant, but not huge role as, as uh, Chris Christopherson's as Avril's friend, um, who runs the roller rink called Heaven's Gate that gives the film its title. Uh, and, and he's quite wonderful in, in that part. He's very jovial and he, he's, he plays a very appealing character. Um, so yeah, if you can get the Criterion copy, um, or watch it, maybe it's on the Criterion channel, streaming channel, um, and you can reassess it and, uh, and appreciate it for its, its values and its, its epic scope. I think it really is worth uh, returning to. So now from Heaven's Gate to Kevin's yes. Gate, uh, which is in fact what it was dubbed at the time, Waterworld from 1995, uh, Kevin Costner, of course, uh, matinee idol star, uh, leading man in a number of films, also had dances with wolves at this point. So he was a well-regarded Oscar-winning filmmaker, um, decided to put all of his efforts towards Waterworld, which on the surface of it, <laughs> no pun intended, is uh, is just like this very kind of cheesy ripoff of Mad Max, except it's set in an ocean on an ocean where where the all the ice caps have melted and therefore where there is no solid land left. So and it's he, kind of ahead of its time. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. If you want to think about it in those ways, um, he's playing kind of a nameless man from Atlantis, a man with gills in a this future Earth, and he spends his time on this sort of super tricked out yacht uh, and he barters with other survivors of the cataclysm and, and at this barter town he encounters a woman uh, played by Jeannie Triplehorn and a girl played by Tina Majorino and the girl has a, ma- a map tattooed on her back supposedly the map is to dry land so that makes her the sort of the MacGuffin I guess if you want to call her that uh, of the film and Dennis Hopper livens th- things up considerably as the deacon the leader of a band Band of bandits also looking for the girl called the smokers. Uh, and they do smoke a lot. Yes. Uh, this is, there are small kind of fun post-apocalyptic kind of in-jokes here, but I couldn't get over watching again how otherwise Kevin Reynolds, who directed it, has sort of a generic action, 90s action kind of style. <laughs> yes, very much. And, um, you know, and Costner working against his natural charisma and likability, playing this guy who's really a jerk, like he's just not likable at all. And by the end of the film, you sort of understand the reasons for the way he is, but it's not what I would call something that I would rush out to see, um, you know, especially given that George Miller has returned to Mad Max and made Fury Road and shown us all what he can actually do with, you know, that 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 material is still living and breathing amongst us. This just feels kind of like a very expensive also ran. Yeah, it's and it's the early days of CGI as well, and I think most of the CGI in this film is to restore Kevin Costner's receding hairline from everything I've read about it. But the uh, it is very much indicative of the action movie making of its time, uh, so it, it does have that kind of relic feel about it. So th- that is maybe not a reason to watch, but it is it, you know if you've heard about what a disaster it it is or was, uh, it might be worth returning to for that. Dennis Hopper is is a reason enough to watch it. He's great as as the deacon, and uh, you know he he 
doesn't take the role terribly seriously. He seems to be having fun with it. And, you know, Dennis Hopper having fun is, is, is good enough for me, but it is, it's visually, it's kind of an ugly film. <laughs> like yeah. the, everything is kind of brown and khaki and olive green. Like it's just, it's just not in a visually appealing movie, uh, which is, I, you know, I saw it in the theater and I remember thinking that at the time that it was just, I just got tired of looking at it kind of the same way uh, Ebert was with the original, uh, print of uh, heaven's gate. It's, um, but but it does have little pleasures along the way. Some of the character roles. Jack Black is in it briefly as an airplane uh, pilot, which I, I did. We didn't even recognize him <laughs> it's just until like we saw the credits. Credits yeah. and like, oh my gosh, it was him. Um, so it it does deserve a fair bit of the ire that was directed at at it, but maybe not entirely. I guess it did eventually make money back. Yeah, um, but, it's not quite the disaster that it originally had seemed to be. But it you know it, it is an example of egos and and hubris uh, kind of. Spinning yeah. out of control. And and Costner would go on to make The Postman, which didn't do any better. So he, I think after that, he's like, I'm done with post-apocalyptic, which is probably <laughs> for the best. He, I think uh, eventually even uh, Charlton Heston decided he'd had enough of it too back in the 70s. Yeah, so. I feel like at some point I will watch The Postman just because, but uh, that day has not arrived yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I guess we're about to wrap up here, Lens Me Your Ears, and our look at Hollywood disasters as we come to the end of this episode. And wanted to give a shout out to one more before we're done, and that's Hudson Hawk from 1991, directed and written by Michael Lehman and Daniel Waters, respectively, who both wrote and directed Heathers. So there's a reason to check it out, and Heathers is, has aged really well. Um, but Hudson Hawk is is largely seen as a Bruce Willis vanity project. And there is a lot of evidence to that in the film, but it's so silly and the characters and the performers are having so much fun. And there's actually some pretty great location cinematography in Italy and in Rome that there are things to recommend the film going back to watch it. Not the least of which is the late Danny Aiello is having a lot of fun here as Tommy Five-Tone. Bruce Willis plays a cat burglar, Aiello is his buddy, his partner, and uh, he's Willis's character kind of wants out of the business. He's been in jail for a while. He wants to be done. But these others, other people, these characters, they won't let him stop. And so things- <laughs> We've go... never seen that before. No, never. Uh, so, and, and oh, and fans of Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt definitely need to watch this. They are amazing as the villains. Uh, and even Richard E. Grant introduces himself at one point as- I'm the villain. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of a movie. Yeah, Everything is way over the top. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. There's there's some fourth wall breaking. Uh, I think maybe because it was so totally weird um, in terms of comedy and and cartoonishness, uh, it, it it didn't give people what they wanted after you know Die Hard and Die Hard Two, I suppose. But uh, you know Willis wanted to make a movie about a guy guys who do heists to musical numbers and and uh it's a great idea which is a great idea and i don't know that that part of it gets executed as well as it could have been but uh but it it it's i mean i saw it when it came out and i remember enjoying it more than i thought i would and couldn't understand all the ire being directed at it and uh watching it again now it's still fairly charming it's over the top um and and ridiculous uh in a in a very kind of 80s way i suppose but uh but still, I got a, I got a lot of pleasure out of yeah, it. Yeah, me too. And Willis Willis is a bit smug, but you know what's oh, just a bit. My, you know the part of the film I think I like the most going back is James Coburn as the CIA guy. He's got a bunch of assassins working for him, all named after candy bars. But 
his lines. At one point, he goes, God, I miss communism. The red threat. People were scared. The agency had some respect. And I got laid every night. Oh, and he also says, we blow up space shuttles for breakfast. Like, it's that kind of, that's that's the level you're dealing with it, with with him. Um, but, you know, Coburn can can make it work. He's He just had that kind of charm. That's it for this edition of Lends Me Your Ears and our look at cats and underdogs. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed the show. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm a writer here in Halifax. You can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm Karsten Knox, and you can find me on Twitter from my flaw in the iris uh, title of my blog. And we also have an at Lends Me Your Ears uh, Twitter account and Facebook page. And uh, if you feel like supporting us, we also have a Patreon if you want to throw a buck or two our way. Uh, thanks, as always, to the folks at CKD for the use of their facilities and for airing us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And, of course, Village Sound for putting all the glossy finishing CGI on our floaty faces and making us sound so good. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.